Zero Foxtrot does not profess to share or promote the opinions and beliefs expressed by show host or guests. The Stay Zero podcast was created to provide a platform for servicemen and women to share their stories. Due to the nature of this podcast, sensitive topics will arise. Conversations about combat, PTSD, drug use, and other such subjects will occur. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Stay Zero podcast. I have David Eaton here with me today. And David, you work for Endeavors as a licensed counselor, right? That's right. The Stephen A. Cohen Military Family Clinic at Endeavors in San Antonio as a licensed professional counselor. Awesome. And and you mostly work with vets. Veterans. Or is it exclusively? Well, veterans and their families. Okay. Yeah. So it's the vet and anybody, you know, kind of directly or indirectly with that vet. Um, and of course, family members. And we do individual and, and couples and sometimes families, whole families. Nice. But you were also a veteran as well. I was. You served in the army. I did. All right. <laughs> tell me tell me about that. What was that like? Or you were officer, correct? Well, no, not all the time. Okay. I uh, guess I, I am Mustang, I guess. Jump um, on both sides of the fence, huh? Yeah, yeah. No, I initially, uh, I did delayed entry in uh, in 87. Uh, went on active duty in December of 87. Fuck, I was two. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me way old then, right? Um, served uh, with A Company 1505, 3rd Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division from 88 to 91 to include, you know, WWG, the, the first Gulf War. Yeah. Um, and uh, after that, I, I did an in-service reenlistment. And uh, I got a funny story about that and uh, went into the California National Guard while okay. I was in college. Well, so that was a swap over from Army to National Guard? Still, still, still Army. California Army Reserve National Guard. Okay. California, yeah. Just this, uniform, okay. all of that, yeah. Is that a state National Guard, though? Like Texas, yeah. we have a... Yeah, okay. state National Guard. Okay, so mm -hmm. out of the big Army into yep. the state Army. Yep. Wow. Um and then while I was there, I got two no-notice call-outs while I was in college, one for the Rodney King riots in L.A., and then after that— What was it? Were you part of that? Did you yeah. have to respond to that? Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it was nuts and bolts. It was <laughs> I got a call from my squad leader at like 2 o'clock in the morning, which would typically be kind of 82nd or Ranger Battalion style, but this was the California National Guard at the time. Yeah. And he goes, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, I'm sleeping. What do we think I'm doing? Who needs a designated driver right now? He goes, <laughs> I need you to turn on your TV. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Turned on the TV. And, you know, the Reginald Denny thing had gone down and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, yeah. they called us up, bro. I'm like, that's LA, bro. They're like, no, like everybody. Wow. So you need to get to the center such and such and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, we did some training and then, you know, we went up there and spent about 19, 20 days. Wow. Yeah. With the Marines and all of it. Like cleaning up, doing security. Was there well, active a lot of, rioting? Yeah. Part of it. Part of it. And then they, we, they sequestered us for um, some time too, to see like if we left, if it would bubble back up. Oh. So we had to like go into urban, like we hid in a gym, like wow. a whole... Italian sleeping on cots and just not waiting. even cots. Yeah, no, it was it was completely 
Like you slept on the curb, you slept on the grass, you slept on the whatever. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, there was times when, when, uh, we helped out the fire department and things like that simply because they were a little nervous about, um, like going into buildings and things, um, to, to put out fires and, and stuff like that because yeah. of squatters. Koreans on the rooftop. Well, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things were happening too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was, uh, I got a, you know, it was a great experience out of it, you know? Um, so, but that all happened. And then we, we ended that mission. Um, and you said twice you got, yeah. what and was then, the other one? Well, a couple of years later, the earthquake happened, Northridge earthquake happened in like 94, right? And we all got woken up by that one because that one was a pretty big one. Yeah. <laughs> Typical California though, you're like, oh, that was a big one. And then everybody kind of goes back to bed. Right. But same, you know, squad leader calls me again. He goes, hey, get, turn on the TV. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I turned on the TV and I think everybody remembers if you were old enough back then, there was a time where, so the a chunk of the freeway fell like a big chunk of one of the freeways like broke out and fell and left a big gap. But then there was another video clip of this, the road had cracked open and a gas line had broke. Mm -hmm. So there was flames like coming up through a regular LA street. Wow. So it looked, you know, gnarly. Yeah. And that's what they kept. Apocalyptic. Yeah. It was all, yeah. that was the real, you yeah. know, that was the real. So that got real, real, real quick. Like we moved immediately. When that happened, like we, they told us to be at the center in like four or seven hours. It was like, you got to be kidding me. This is the National Guard. They're like, no, you need to show up by 6 a.m. We're leaving. And wow. we did. No shit at like 6.05, man. We were in the deuce and a half, driving to LA again. Wow. Yeah. And you know, the, the earthquake one. So <laughs> we got up there and they sequestered us again to, before we got our orders. And we sequestered at the Hollywood Bowl. So they brought us into the Hollywood Bowl. I'm on the stage, right? Like the same place where, you know, the Lizard King, Jim Morrison and stuff, you know, yeah. barks out at the crowd and stuff yeah. like that, you know? So, but there we were, we, we kind of sequestered there and waited for our orders. And then we got our orders and then we, we went out and started doing patrols there too. And that was mostly like my company at that time got Hollywood Boulevard. Like we got most of Hollywood Boulevard and the star, the star fame. Is that just for, and like until utilities can be turned back on, like how bad was, what well, was it y'all were? you know, it was amazing, you know, for the, the Rodney King response, mm -hmm. man, I saw awesomeness happen, right? I just saw how awesomeness so? happen. In what way? Um, so nobody had anything, right? Like nobody had anything. Like everything was gone out of every store. It was Oh, wow. gone. Like, like food was gone. Everything was gone. Right. So they used us a lot to just kind of form lines and stuff like that, you know, and, and get people into lines. And I remember we were in a place where let's just say it was economically depressed, mm. way economically depressed. Okay. And I saw them bring in like seven tractor truck trailers backed them in, right? Miles of like five deep people with nothing. Mm -hmm. 
give them a cart. They come through. They throw stuff out of the backs of the trucks. Everybody had stuff. They bailed, took their stuff, and, and went with Chow. It was amazing. With economical like, Zoloft. Well, it's, it's <laughs> just one of those things where if we choose to do it, we can do whatever we want. Yeah. Whatever we want. On another time, when uh, for, the, for the earthquake one, yeah. right? So it's the earthquake, right? Like, so it's sort of a big deal. I mean, there, that, was, that was bad, all right? The Rodney King riots were bad, but the, the earthquake was bad too. And I saw, you know, no plug for the Red Cross in a real sense, but I saw the Red Cross set up a table like we were with the Red Cross, right? And there's people in line. The guy had a lined legal pad, a checkbook, and a stack of blankets, all right? Hmm. The earthquake happened maybe 24 hours ago, if that, if that. And he's like, where do you live? Okay, you're going to go to this hotel, take your blankets. Where do you live? Take this, go to this hotel, all of it happening, wow. like right now. And I'm like, damn, I guess we can do what we want when we want to. Yeah. But when it's bad, bad, we can do a lot of stuff. All right. Now, again, I don't want to say that California doesn't better than everybody else, but that's where I saw it happen. Right. Like I didn't see Katrina and all those other kind of things. And Katrina was its own, you know, yeah. craziness and stuff like that. But when, you know, the riots happened for that particular time. And, and then when the earthquake happened, the, I saw some pretty cool stuff, you know? Do you think maybe there was less political red tape in, in I don't that remember time any political than we have tape. now, right? Well, like, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, those districts are still the same districts and led by the same people now that they were then. That's probably true, yeah. You know, and nobody... There weren't any clashing of swords and there wasn't any craziness about who's doing what or whatever. Right. I mean, I had guys, Zach, dude, check it out. Like, you almost feel bad, right? Because like after the riots and, and you know, we were hanging and, and doing our patrols and, you know, the Marines were doing their stuff and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I had people thanking us for being there, like Los Angelitos saying thanks. Like here's a teenager with a machine gun on their street. And they're saying, thanks for being here. Nice. Bringing us food, all kinds of stuff, man. So, I mean. It's amazing not, how well we come together. Dude, again, not to be cheesy, but yeah. I swear to Christ, when whenever we want to do something, we can do it. Yeah. Like when it's real, real, yeah. like people don't hesitate. Like it's, the way 9-11 united again, the nation. when it's real, real, nobody right. cares. Yeah. Boom, done. Everything's knocked out of the way. Everything gets done. Yeah. You know, and nobody counts the cost. Nobody's taking the credit. Nobody's doing the whatever, yeah. you know, you just do it. You know, I mean, the Marines were called out for Christ's sake. Yeah. Like real Marines, active Marines. Nobody, you know, we said, no, it's positive. Nobody said that. It was like, man, this is real, dude. Things got sideways. We need every all hands on deck. And guess what happened? Pendleton unloaded. We unloaded. And we did the best we could. Why do you think that, like, that didn't happen in Hawaii? I don't know. Dude, don't even know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't ask those questions. It's like, I hear stories of guys that were like, yeah, I was deployed to Louisiana for Katrina and stuff. And they're like talking about shooting people for looting, mm -hmm. not creating food lines. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I can't speak to that, man. What I can say is, is that, you know, when I was a college student, just out of the 82nd, just home from Desert Storm, all that stuff kind of rolled out. 
and I had the coolest first sergeant that you could ever ask for, a Vietnam dude from like the third herd, 173rd guy, you know. All of us had just gotten out. All of us had just started college. All of us were like, first sergeant, we probably need to go and take some tests and not fail like all the classes that we're in and stuff like that. And he's like, we'll get it squared. And, and they did. The teachers at the colleges knew what was up. The, we took a deuce and a half back, <laughs> got to our cars, drove to our tests and classes, got back in the car and, and redeployed. Wow. All under the blessing. And, and like I said, nobody fell back, at least, you know, in our unit. It was one of those things where it was really cool. That is cool. Yeah. How, what was Desert Storm like? Where were, what what'd you do there? I was, like I said, A Company 1505, 3rd Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division. You know, so we were, you know, the 325 bolted immediately, and then we bolted right behind the 325. So we all kind of landed with them in Saudi Arabia and formed the line in the sand and, you know, all that horseshit that everybody talks about, you know. And fell behind 7th Corps and did the sweep around to the left with 7th Corps and, you know, ended up at... I don't know a whole lot about Desert Storm, did <laughs> you? Know, it's that old, right? <laughs> like, damn, dude, you're wicked old. But yeah, so yeah, Desert Storm. Just light fighters. We got we got into buses. Sometimes we got into trucks. Um, again, we, we followed a, the mechs on the left flank mm -hmm. coming around. Uh, we ended up at Talil Airfield Talil, in Iraq. Yeah. Yep. And that was the end of our battle uh, kind of a deal. We we secured Talil Airfield. Kind of crazy shit that went on at Talil. Not not real hard combat, but some crazy ass shit. And then from there, we fell back around to like the line where they did the peace negotiations, you know, and that was where it got kind of bad, you know, because they were – that's a part that the war that nobody talks about. But, I mean, during the peace negotiations, it got bad. You know, the, the, the Iraqis were – were terrorizing people in their own towns and stuff like that. Mm. You know, so it was gnarly. Um, why do you think they were doing that? I don't know. Because they helped us out. That's that's why. Okay. Yeah. No. So they things. were targeting anyone that they thought had helped Americans. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think they're still doing that. Oh. <laughs> definitely. I mean, I, there was a time when we took some of wherever we took the stuff. I don't even remember. But it was like. Really old school stuff, like a conventional force. We took over warehouses, like with mad guns, dude. Legions of the stuff. Cosmoline still on them. Huge FNFNLs. I got pictures of it. Wow. Huge amounts of weapons, right? Uniforms, everything. The bosses at the time called up special forces. A special forces team rolled in, signed for them, and took them to the rebels. Like really? just like it's supposed to happen. Really? Like, yeah. Special Forces team came in, grabbed all the stuff, took it off. I mean, all those guys probably got slammed, but I mean. Were those rebels fighting us or fighting no, the Iraqi army? No, they were army? fighting the Iraqis. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Because there was still some, you know, there was support and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know the whole story, but I mean, that's, I mean, I was just Joe, you know, loading trucks and stuff like that, you know. And then I got told, yeah, I went to Special Forces and then Special Forces took him to the kids that are still fighting. Wow. Yeah. And that place is still a mess. Still a mess. Still a mess. So. So you were in college, though. You I was. You, you were, that was undergrad stuff, you know. So okay. um, this is circa 91 to 96, right? Okay. Like the end of 91, the very end of 91 to 96. I went to San Diego State University. Um, 
graduated undergrad there, um, was in ROTC. What did you go to school for? Just political science. Okay. Military science, you know, just college at the time. Yeah. Um, not the sharpest tool in the shed, certainly, you know, uh, the old Montgomery GI Bill, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. Um, so did that, got commissioned, um, and went right back on active duty and, uh, started doing all that. Um, was a lieutenant in Korea, uh, was, uh, captain at of, a, of an infantry platoon. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep. Um, how was your, third, how was land nav? Third. Did you get through mm -hmm. that? Okay. Rangers, uh, land nav. I was always pretty good at land nav. Just teasing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never, never too lost. In That's the, the running joke. But yeah. I mean, you were a Mustang first, so yeah. we'll give you some credit there. So, um, I mean, I, I, you know, to, there was a time that I, in the ranger school course where I had to dump my canteens and run as fast as I could. Yeah. Because I wasn't going to make it. Yeah. Like I was like, I got a time hack. I got to shit everything off me about my body and just run. Yeah. Uh, so I did. I like dumped all my water. What year did you go through Ranger? I was class uh, 197. So it was like, I think I graduated in May, I think. May 28th, I think. Something like that. What year was that? 97. Oh, in 97. Yeah, okay. 197. 197 in 97. So, I mean, forgive me if I get that wrong, but I know the class number was 197 and I'm pretty sure the date was the 28th of May. How much weight did you lose in Ranger school? I don't know. I don't know. A lot. Yeah. You know what happened to me? <laughs> so I had, I had busted my teeth in the 82nd when I was in the 82nd as a Joe, right? Yeah. And the, back then they had like these weird veneers that they would put on there, you know? But in ranger school, something like I didn't have enough nutrition for the veneers to like stay up and they crumbled. Really? Right? Yeah. So my teeth got all snarly naggle toothed. You wow. Know, it was gnarly. Yeah. So that was, that was my... My worst fear was like my teeth falling apart because I had busted them. I have you know. nightmares about like teeth falling out yeah. and things like, it's a very weird thing. I've always- Well, they're much why. better now. The dentists much better now. <laughs> have, have, I still have a terrible grill, but- Well, like the sleep and nutritional deprivation in ranger school is what it's known for. Yeah. Right? Like how much weight you lose, all the- you Well, know, when you talk sleeping, to the older rangers though, just, they're like, you had two MREs a day, dude. Shut up. Yeah. I think that's yeah. every generation. No, I know. Uh, like, uh, you were a two meal day, a day uh, guy, right? Oh, <laughs> never mind. Pussy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> every generation yeah, has. No, it. yeah. Gimme. It was a gimme for you. Yeah. So. That's funny. So what'd you do after that? Well, again, I, I, I finished up in Korea. Uh, in between there, um, I was making horrible mistakes and good moves and all those other kind of things and uh, ended up at Bragg after that. Uh, and then at, you know, from Bragg, this is like 2000-ish, right? Um, got to Bragg and uh, ended up going back to the same battalion that I was in for the first Gulf War, mm -hmm. right? So I knew the officer assignment guy at division headquarters. Really? And I, yeah. And he's like, uh, we're going to send you to such and such. I'm like, no, I don't want to go to such and such. 
He's like, well, what do you want to do? I want to go. I said, I want to go back to the 505th. He's like, man, the command queue in the 505th is like long, dude. You're going to be staff officer for forever. And I'm like, oh, man, that's. Why did you want to go back there? That's, that's where I grew up, man. I grew up 88 to 91 at Fort Bragg. <laughs> you can't. I mean, that's. I don't know what the Marines do when they're either at Pendleton or Lejeune or anything like that. But when you're a Joe at I don't Fort Bragg, <laughs> when you're a Joe at Fort Bragg in the in the 80s, yeah, it was cray cray. It was cray. We had so much fun; it was ridiculous. Really? Oh God! It was just humping and jumping and and drinking and fooling around and, I mean, I don't know. People bust the eighty seconds chops all the time, and I get that, but. We had a good time. We really did. That and we trained good. hard, man. We did. We trained hard. I was at the stumps, 29 palms. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get any any fun. That wasn't allowed to happen. No, we do, you know, Myrtle Beach and, you know, all, you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, we were making horrible mistakes, sins of great magnitude. <laughs> I mean, seriously, just great magnitude. Again, I, I don't, you know, lucky every day, right? Though by the grace of God go I. But- Thank God for penicillin. Something, you know. <laughs> and I met the best group of guys ever, and we're still friends today. That's awesome. And of my nine-man squad, we still know most of us, if not all of us. Some became special forces, contractors. Some became officers. Some became brigade and division sergeant majors, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it yeah. was a— for a clunky little squad in the 82nd that everybody likes to make fun of, it seemed like all of us did pretty good. You know, and we're still in touch today. We do reunions every year in August. Nice. And uh, you know, we talk, talk trash and drink Mad Dog 2020 again and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> talk about Hangover's Rick's a little heavier when you're yeah. older. Talk about the times at Rick's Lounge and and the bottoms up and... I'm trying to think of the other place that we used to go to that was a good, that was a favorite of mine. I'll think of it in a minute. This is where they used to do the rock and roll shows instead of the Dare to Bear contests on Wednesdays. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Flaming Mug. That's the Flaming Mug. Yeah, the Flaming Mug. Man, I wish my unit would get together more. I think there's been probably maybe two or three reunions, maybe more that I just I don't wasn't aware of, but it's been 17 years. And there's low key, like you'll meet up with a couple of buddies mm-hmm. once in a while when they're in town, but we don't have, we tried to do a platoon reunion for my sniper platoon the year of COVID. Mm-hmm. And like everybody had flights. I had a ranch we were going to meet at. It was 800 acres. We were going to hunt and shoot pigs and like, nice. and fucking COVID. Yeah. And, and God, it took like two years just to get that organized. And we haven't even revisited it since then. Well, one of the NCOs at the time, um, Dave Culver, if you're out there, Dave, big shout out. He put the, he drew the line in the sand. He got the guide on from the original company, brought it to his place and said, this is what I'm doing. And it costs him dearly every year, I'm sure. Uh, but he's got space and time up in Seneca, Pennsylvania, and he puts a, Pretty fabulous little get-together for us um, for those year groups. The year groups kind of spread, you sure. know what I mean? It was originally from 88 to 91, but then it started spreading to like beyond the ni- 91 year group yeah. and all that stuff. Each guy knows a guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, 
Yeah, but you know, my saying and with that is is that that it matters. Yeah. You know, I mean, we we had a we had the privilege to be, you know, and I'm talking to a Marine, but you know, we're we had the privilege of serving in one of the most historical units in American Army history. Yeah. All right. I mean, the five oh fifth Parachute Infantry Regiment is a fabulous unit to belong to. It just is. You know, from Sicily all the way to today, you know. Yeah. And I know we're just 18-year-olds with machine guns. But, uh, you know, my joke is, is, hey, uh, sure, the surgical guys could do it with their little surgical knives all they want. We'll come with a fucking chainsaw. So if you really want something cut the fuck down, invite us in. Yeah. You know, although if you want to keep it clean, then, you know, use some of the tear guys, whatever. Yeah. But if you want it burnt to the ground, um, Sure. Oh, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a very similar mentality in the Marine Corps. Well, very much so. Yeah. You know, and I, I think we kind of lost that, you know, in our last couple of wars. Like yeah, we tried to keep sure. it sterile and clean and all these other kind of things. And I know that there's laws of rules of warfare. I get that. Sure. But in the end, you want them to fear the Marines showing up. Right. You want them to see parachutes and go, oh my God, yeah. it's over. Yeah. Whatever we thought was going to happen isn't now. Yeah, I think the strategy of trying to to rebuild or maintain while we're fighting, it, like it, it's it's too much. It's put us in there, and let us win the war first, and then we'll rebuild it after. Well, again, to use the L.A. example twice in a row, mm -hmm. or maybe go all the way back to the Marshall Plan, we can. Yeah, when it's over, yeah, we can rebuild. Right, and I mean, I don't know if everybody knows the history on that, but I mean. Probably not. Truman kind of made that Marshall Plan happen. Talk even, to me about it. What, let's, well, from what my understanding is, is even before Congress kind of blessed off on the money, mm -hmm. he's like, oh, no, we're doing this. Then the plane started taking over, you know, 77,000 plus odd flights. I don't know what the real number is, but wow. it was ridiculous. And it, it built Germany back. Yeah. Right. We occupied. Same thing with Japan. Occupied. Yeah. Mm. Well, still there. And they're one of our two greatest allies economically and militarily that we still have. So I don't know. Maybe Shinseki was right. Oh, damn. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> yeah. You know, you should probably edit that out. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. Wow. The old school conventionals, man. And I, you know, just old school conventional stuff. Damn. Mm. I worked. know it's dirty and... You know, it's, it, it has produced in the past, mm. right? It's true. I don't know that, I mean, maybe when we were trying to win wars, I don't feel like we're oh, trying damn. to win them. You anymore. said that out loud, not me, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, I don't feel like that's our motivation. Maybe it's anymore. not, you know, maybe it's not, maybe we, we, we like to make money mm. during wars, but we don't necessarily want to win them. Yeah. I think Schmedley Butler would back me up on that. He's one of your guys. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a great book. It is a great book. I read that after um, after I got out. I some I forget who sent me that book, but I ended up reading Wars a Racket mm -hmm. and having this light bulb moment of in two thousand and five. I guess it would have been we were we were in Fallujah, and all of a sudden we were told we couldn't do laundry anymore. Like what the fuck? We have Four washers and we didn't have dryers. We just, but it was Iraq. Really? The world is your dryer. Right. 550 cord. Yeah, boom. Yeah. Boom. Right. 
Um, and we, yeah, and then we were told we couldn't do laundry anymore. I was like, all right, what the fuck? I'm like, how are we going to wash our clothes? <laughs> well, every week we will put together a convoy to Camp Fallujah and you will have your laundry done by, I think it was Halliburton. And I'm like, so we, we, we can't do laundry and now we all have to organize this convoy and risk our lives every week through Fallujah to go do laundry. I mean, I wasn't totally complaining because it gave me an opportunity to hit the PX, mm -hmm. to make a phone call, to eat some real food. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, like I appreciate those things, but this seems like a very unusual rule to come down with. And then I, I found out later that they were making $40 a load of laundry for however many loads that they were getting done at Camp Fallujah. And that that was a contract that they had with the military. And the only way that they would make money on that is if all the units that weren't there came in and did their laundry. And so we had been told, because uh, I, <laughs> I ended up, um, this is a fun story. Uh, it, it struck a chord with me especially because I was a sniper living with the locals. That was kind of our thing. We'd go out for a week and a half or so, and it was a lottery system. Who's going to get the shits each time we go, mm. right? Because we're eating with the locals. We're living right. with the locals. And so we didn't have, we didn't have bathrooms. We had these wag bag tents mm. and it's like a two man pop-up tent with a little toilet and, and there's a, a box next to it full of wag bags and a wag bag is it's like a it's like a a plastic bag about like this that you open up and there's a trash bag inside full of kitty litter that you have to shake open and set into the box and spread it out and then put the seat down and then sit down and do your business and when you've when you've got Saddam's revenge right mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're doing the the toe curled shuffle across the fob to try mm -hmm. to get to the wag bag station, and then you still have all these steps. Um, I didn't make it, right? And so I'm standing here like shaking this wag bag out, and I could just feel it like going down my legs. I'm like, right. oh god, no! <laughs> and I, uh, I, I, by the time I get everything set up, I really didn't right. have any reason to sit down, um, and so. I, I take my pants off and I've got nothing. I clean my legs up with baby wipes, right? And I, I throw everything into this wag bag thing and I throw it over and I have to walk back across the fob with nothing but a skivvy shirt, a pistol belt, bare-assed with my pants covered in shit, wadded up over my junk and boots and just strike up the band just the walk of shame that's it <laughs> and, and i'm walking across the fob just like uh, with my eyes half closed like if i don't see you you don't see me right i'm thinking and, invisible and right dudes now. are like what the fuck man yeah like don't talk to me right now and i had to go ask for permission to clean my pants oh man and luckily, Gunny got a good laugh and was like, yeah, man, you can, you can, they went and took the tape off the washing machines so oh, that I could do a load of laundry because I didn't have any other clothes. Wow. And then, yeah, and reading Smedley Butler's The War, the War is a Racket, and then hearing like, you guys were forcing us to take a convoy through Fallujah in 2005 so we could make Halliburton money. And maybe it wasn't Halliburton. I forget the exact company. 
but you get the gist. Yeah. So they can make $40 a load of laundry off well, of these Marines. For those of you paying attention at home, Smedley Butler, two-star Marine general, mm. two-time earner of the Congressional Medal of Honor, yeah. wrote a book yeah. called Wars a Racket based on his data from World War One. Yeah. Like we hadn't even done World War II yet. Yeah. And he's talking about millionaires and billionaires oh, from yeah. World War One in World War One money. Oh, yeah. I mean, so you can imagine where we're at now. Right. Yeah. Like, mm, don't need to go down that road, but yeah. There's so all kinds of money. There's all, kind of money. There's all kinds they, of money to be made out there. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And who's going to talk trash to Schmedley Butler? You can't shut a guy like that down. Yeah. It'd be hard to. Okay. So you anyway, got out. Yep. You came back to San Antonio. <laughs> yep. And I, uh, I was Did scared take to death. six months? No. That's no. the joke, right? They oh, okay. said to take six months. And then- the joke is, and this is when I help vets, I, I, I actually say, hey, look, I kind of walk this trail a little bit. So, so give me a second to kind of explain. But when you do sit down, we bought a home. We, did a, we bought the last affordable home in San Antonio in 2019. Um, you, you can only do so many projects and you can only live so many Mondays where you're like, it's Monday. It's a... Uh, what are we going to do? Right? You know, and people think, well, you're going to go hunt, you're going to go fish, you're going to do a podcast, you're going to do whatever. I just, I admire guys like you that have the acumen to actually create it. Mm. Like most of us out there don't. Like most of us are like, I'm, I'm not going to write a book. I'm, I'm, there's an, in no, I bought a like podcast for dummies book at the library I and, remember and read, when you told me that. Right, and read like <laughs> four chapters of it and went like, this is out of my league. In no way can I do it. In no way can I do it. I'm like, I think the only reason I pulled off is because I didn't buy a book and I didn't know what I was getting into. Again, devil dogs, just taking the beach. I mean, it's oh. beautiful. Again, it's beautiful, okay? So we got the house all up to snuff and whatever. And uh, so I, I retired, like in the retirement world, you like – you retire, like your day ends on the 30th of every month. And then the, the following first of the month, you drop from rolls, right? So I dropped, I dropped from rolls literally three days before my 50th birthday. So not too bad, right? Yeah. Retired, Lieutenant Colonel. Perfect. Less than 50 by three days. Yeah. <laughs> not fired, not going to jail. Lived no, through it all. Yeah, lived through it all. No arrests, no warrants. Got a family somewhat intact. There is some flotsam and jetsam out there, but, you know. Fucking every, W. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I, as I was saying, like, at the West Point thing, I, I had my stuff. I did my stuff, you know? And I, I got, like, a retirement bump plan somewhat logistically in line. Yeah. Like, I had a license, all this kind of stuff. I applied for my Texas license while I was in France. So I had my Texas license when I got here and I started looking for a job, like soul sucking job searching, <laughs> right? And um, though by the grace of God go I, you know, I got the call from the Stephen A. Cohen Clinic at Endeavors. And I did a couple of interviews and they're like, we can pay you this much. And I went, <laughs> When do I start? <laughs> um, poker face, poker yeah. face. Yeah. Um, and it's been, so right after that, COVID started, 
right? Like I, I started, COVID started, we got pushed out. So we we're all desperate everywhere doing our stuff. Mm-hmm. CVN endeavors got us all squared away and we lived through the pandemic. Um, and we earned our spurs in that kind of a way too, right? Like continuing continuity of care through the pandemic when we didn't know Jack from Shinola on how it was all affecting us. We know a lot more that it's affecting us a lot more than we want to admit now. Sure. Um, with all the gaps, let alone just mental health. I mean, there's gaps everywhere. Um, but I got the job in December of 19, and I've been doing it ever since. And, and that's providing counselor services to to veterans through the VA or well, just we the VA is our big strategic partner okay and the VA is our biggest um referral place right okay. like the VA will refer to us okay right the VA is very specific in what it does um and there's criteria for the VA you as yeah. a vet know yeah right the thing that the Cohen clinics do, the, the the Stephen A. Cohen clinics, there's 24, 25 of our clinics from sea to shining sea, from from Hawaii to Alaska and and to Virginia, right? We're all throughout the United States. Anyway. Does every state have one? No, okay. not at all. Mm-mm. Okay. Not at all. But you exclusively treat people within the state of the Texas. State, the right? state of is Texas. It, is it the only clinic in Texas? No, no. There's many. Well, there's four. Okay. Colleen, El Paso, San Antonio, and Dallas. All right. Okay. Um, but, F, you know, Tex- Texas is twice the size of Afghanistan. And we're a major provider for, I mean, recruitment. Like yeah. when you look at big states, New York, California, Texas. And yeah. For the real forces part of it, yeah. we're the, well, New York and California, pretty big. California or Texas, real, real in there, right? Yeah for the people that join and, and do the work. Um, so there's a lot of need here, right? Um, so been doing that since December through the pandemic and now. And and the, we, like I said, the VA is our biggest strategic partner, um, but there are things that they don't do that we can do, all right? Which is uh, couples and families, all right? So we, what they call it is they call, we fill the gap, right? Yes. And uh, that's that's what we've been doing, and still do. I wanted to I wanted to ask you since since that's where you've landed. You've been there four years now. Four years. Four years. What are some of the trends that you're seeing? Because obviously, the mental health issue in the veteran community is is big, and it's it's rough, and everybody talks about it. Everyone supports solving it, but no one seems to really know how. But you're, in my opinion, the tip of the spear of the people who are trying to make that effort and do that and and working directly, hearing it from the veteran's mouth. What are they struggling with? At least well, what are the trends that you're seeing? And, and what's the advice that, that you usually give them? Well, here's the thing. We are still the stigma. All right. We are still the stigma. I think the first person that any vet is going to reach out to is a peer. Yeah. All right. So if you're a peer out there, answer the phone, go yeah. to them, do that. Um, we are still the stigma because we're like a civilian version of behavioral mental health. 
right? Like, I'm not going to go to that. I'm not going to go talk to some jackass. No, not going to happen. Okay. I felt that way. I mean, my wife has asked me to do therapy before. And in my mind, I like picture some purple haired woman right. on a couch that's going to just affirm everything my wife tells me that I do that's fucked up. <laughs> and so, right. Like yeah. I, it doesn't, it doesn't instill like an excitement of like, oh, let's, let's work through this. And it's funny. I actually, I became more open to that from a television show called Couples Therapy mm -hmm. that we happened in to New just, York. Yeah, That's yeah, right. we just saw it on television. Yep. And I was like, oh, this is entertaining. Like these people airing out all their laundry. Yep. But most people, at least couples, I feel, I kind of deal with a lot of the same issues. And so just in, in hearing the problems that these other couples were having, they were initiating the conversation between my wife and I. Yes. In, in a less confrontational way because we were more or less discussing their problem and then kind of how it does relate to ours and yes. and so it, it really disarmed it a lot and i'm glad to hear that there's someone like you with your background with your perspective because that's what i'm i would be coming into it with right and most of the guys would be coming into it with and probably thinking the same shit that i was like this is gonna be some someone who has no idea what i've been through right. that i can't relate to and might have some advice that could help me well i i watch my biases very closely i do the best i can to to stay away from me and have it all be about the current patient or client, mm -hmm. all right? But I do, um, and there are other veteran clinicians at our shop as well too. Um, but I do, I'm able to, to kind of look at it, you know, and I joke at it with my bosses. I'm like, hey, I, every time I look at whatever we do here, I may be a clinician, but I am one standard of deviation away from being a client. Mm. So I always look at it from a client's eyes. Every time I come to work, I'm like, would I come into this building? <laughs> Yeah. If I was Joe that got hammered or hammered somebody or versions of the same, would I come to this building? And I answered that affirmatively all the time. I'm like, this is what I would want to do. And I think that's, you know, I was told by one of my Sergeant Major mentors, right? Because we always bust Sergeant Majors, at least in the Army, about the, the grass, right? Like, stay off my goddamn grass, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But he finally put it into context, and this is where I'm kind of going with what you were saying as far as perspective. He kind of put grass into concept with me. He's like, you're proud of the unit, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm proud of the unit. He goes, the grass is one of the first ambassadors to this unit. The first thing anybody sees about our unit is this grass. So why would you jack up my grass? It's speaking for you right now. Do you want it to be a bucket of trash? No. I want it to be mowed and look good, right? Because we have you guys look good. You guys are, you know, back in the days when we used to wear starts and spits and high and tights and all that stuff. Do you think that metaphor carries over to the civilian veteran community and how well that they maintain their appearance, their physical health, their... I am of the opinion now because of what I learned and what was taught to me is that if you're not paying attention to the small stuff, I'm not going to trust you with the big stuff. So don't, don't yell at me and say, I can put my hands in my pockets and I can still fight. No, the mentality once you get into the greater positioning of decision-making is, is if they're not paying attention to the small stuff, they're not going to pay attention to the big stuff. Yeah. Maybe that's because I'm a, a feel-grade brainwashed or lobotomized now or whatever. But I, I saw 
the attention to detail that our NCOs demanded in our soldiers transitioned into appropriate war fighting. Mm-hmm. Restriction, discretion, accuracy, respect, all those things that aren't just bullets and buildings and all that stuff. Yeah. You need all that stuff. I mean, it's just like, it's like, I think it was General Krulak that said, we're in a three block war and one block you could be doing this, one block you'd be doing this, one block you'd be doing this. Not that I think we should fight wars like that, but that's what it was for us. Sure. Um, and like I said, that kind of, again, I was the specialist that would bitch. You know, I was the one that rejoiced when we didn't have to shine our boots anymore because we got these other boots, you know? I bucked but, the system with white socks too. Yeah. Just, they can't see them. Fuck these guys. <laughs> but by the time I actually saw that, really portrayed in the output, the desired result that I didn't even know the NCOs were trying to achieve, which was for a conventional airborne unit, about as razor as you could get with execution. Mm. About as razor as you could get. Because we pay attention to the small stuff and the big stuff. I mean, we make mistakes, sure, but it has to start somewhere. Yeah. So that part of me changed over my career, you know. Your perspective grew, right? Yeah. Well, and then and and then the way other people view us as military and as veterans, you know, I think part of the burden that veterans carry is is that veterans have gotten a lot of visibility over the war on terror. And I don't know if I like all of that or not. Like, I don't like the, I don't like the, the commercialization of veterans. I don't, I don't like that. I, I know that there's a monetary value in veterans sometimes. And, and you need to be a veteran owned, veteran this and veteran that, and discount this and discount that. I don't know how I feel about all that stuff. Yeah. Because... It just makes everything more and more visible. And I think it's almost overcompensating for what happened potentially during the Vietnam era. And I think sometimes that impacts veterans in need or veterans that are reframing themselves. It puts them in a kind of a funky spot. You know, maybe they don't want that attention or maybe yeah. maybe they're aggravated at it, right? Like there are times when I'm, you know, you get a little aggravated at the whole system, you know, and and sometimes people leave the service not on their own accord or in a way that suits them. So they they have a perpetual level of anger or frustration or regret or whatever. And for it to always be, you know, get your free veterans meal and veterans day at Denny's, you know, sometimes that I think brings up a level of GERD in some veterans. Have you noticed that a lot, a lot of resentment and I don't, I don't know if I see it a lot. I mean, a lot of the veterans that I treat are angry. I mean, we're all angry at something. Yeah. Right. And we're in that age now where in the mental health community, we have to very consciously balance anger because for a long time, everybody was like, oh, you can't be angry. You can't be the angry vet. Well, anger is a necessary and very important emotion that in some ways has to manifest itself. Now, we don't want you to be ridiculous about it, but we also don't want you to just keep swallowing it either. Yeah. Right? So we have to kind of talk about how we manifest that. What do you tell them to do with that anger? What's a, what's a healthy expression? 
this well, year? Well, the way that I, when a lot of times when we're working with somebody that that has some symptomology related to PTSD and everybody's favorite is anger, right? And you're always angry, you know, you're this and that. I try to explain it to them using military terms, hopefully without overextending myself. I mean, there's tactical responses, operational responses, strategic responses, and above strategic responses, right? And then I kind of frame it in what I call the lead up, the tee up, the execution and the aftermath, right? So it's kind of militarily, like whenever you go into an environment, what's the lead up to it? What's the tee up? Like we're doing this, the engagement, we're in it, and then the aftermath, right? Um, but also at the tactical, operational, strategic, and above strategic level. So when it's like, okay, if you're dealing with a personality every day at work that pisses you off, well, let's look at this at the operational and strategic level. Is this person your boss? <laughs> well, that matters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, is this person a coworker? Is this per you know what I mean? So we kind of uh, we kind of unpack that and say, okay, well, how much of your day can you control, right? About your interaction with this person. Because everybody can't do everything to get everybody off their grinding gears, right? Somebody's going to grind our gears. Mm -hmm. What I try to say is, is don't let what you've been or what you've experienced be grease for you to always go down that anger path. We have to find a different path for you. And part of that is reframing what we get mad at. Like, why are we allowing this to make us mad? Mm -hmm. Is this within our station, right? Or is this just something that if we choose, which is what I try to kind of incorporate at the tactical and, and operational level of thought, we have a lot of choice with this. Like I can choose to have this person not piss me off. I'm allowing this person to make me mad. And that's a choice that I'm making, right? It's like, so... You know, when I work with couples, right, I, I, I go, hey, uh, if somebody calls you an asshole from across the stadium, how much does that impact you? And most go, well, it doesn't because I don't know that person and they're across the way. Well, when your spouse calls you an asshole, how much does that impact you? Deeply. Okay. Well, now we kind of understand the level of kind of what our three foot circle is, right? Like our spouse is in our three foot circle and they, what they say matters and it impacts us. Well, why are we giving that level of impact to everybody? We don't have to do that. It can happen sometimes and it's wrapped up in pride, machismo, whatever words, you, you know, warrior things. Sure. But I can't, you know, we live in, this is Austin, but we live in San Antonio and Austin's a little bit different. But in San Antonio, there are two things that everybody brings up to me regarding anger. And that is lines at HEB and merging on the freeway. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I would say traffic. That yep. one's got to be. In All there. right. It's, those are just two. And we start it from that. Like, hey, you know yeah. what? We're, we're not going to stop people from going to HEB. You probably need to go to HEB. At some point, we got to eat. HEB is one of the major options here. We got to figure this out. Yeah. All right. Same thing with the merge. And I, you know, I still joke with the merge. I'm like, I don't know why San Antonioans are the way they are with the merge, but I now take it upon myself to earn the merge and not deal with it. Yeah. I just do that. But that's me. Well, you got to do you. 
Emotional discipline has become a mantra for me in the last couple of months because I struggle with it as well. Mm -hmm. And and we all, giving that we all, power to someone else and eva mm -hmm. evaluating, like, should I be doing that? Am I expressing emotional discipline right now with this response that I'm having to something? And it's mm -hmm. funny that you, you bring up traffic. It's the same here in Austin. Traffic's fucking horrible. And I... I've always thought it was so odd how driving in Baghdad or driving in Kabul where nobody respects a line on the road, you can't even see them. Mm -hmm. If you could get a car on the sidewalk, they'll drive it up there. Mm -hmm. But no one's fighting out in the street or losing their shit at each other, right? And and the, the rule of thumb, the the whoever has the right of way is who's at, whoever can get their bumper in front of you. Mm -hmm. And if they can come up and get in front, man, well, then they get to go. And you just wait. And you watch this unfold in this like chaos of vehicles that move almost like water through traffic circles and with people walking in a fucking horse-drawn cart and and nobody's angry. Mm -hmm. But you come over here and you try to get onto the highway and you've got your blinker on and you're like, all right, I'm just going to get on. And the guy speeds up so that you can't. And you're like, you motherfucker. Yeah. And I, I do it too. Well, part of it, we all do. Yeah. Right? And part of it is the bleed over from, from potentially us living in, in what we're semi-defining as our entitlement era yeah. right now. Everybody's bitching at who's who and the zoo and who's entitled Maybe to what. Maybe it's better without the rules. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, I, I think when we choose to get angry about it, when some of the keywords and phrases that I use when I, when I know somebody's struggling with anger and myself now, right? Like I give myself advice, right? What am I trying to achieve with my anger? What's my end state? Right. So again, I'm bringing it back to NATO planning, basically. I'm stealing from NATO planning. What is our desired and agreed upon end state? If, if anger is impacting my desired end state, well, then that's not the tool I should be using. Mm. Right. Now we're in an era where emotions from sea to shining sea on the planet have taken a greater front seat than they have in the past. Now, I, I can't speak to if that's a great thing or a, not a great thing, but we're allowing emotion sometimes to trump a lot of things, yeah. facts, reality, all kinds of stuff, all right? But we're, we're moving through that, and it's going to take time to figure out what that, what that is, okay? But specifically with anger, you know, is this impacting my desired end state, all right? And is this something that, you know, the joke that I tell some folks – and it's not necessarily a joke. I wanted to kind of think about it, but I use I use movie quotes and I use rock and roll music and stuff like that because most of the stuff that we deal with has been sung about by the muses for 50 years, more than 50 years. I mean, this isn't none of this stuff is new right. per se. You know, but I use I use like Marvel movies sometimes, right? Like with anger. There's a part where Thanos is telling one of the Avengers something, right? The Avengers, she, she, she says to Thanos, 50 years ago, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't know the exact quote, 50 years ago or 20 years ago, you killed my parents and ruined my life. To which Thanos being Thanos says, I don't even know you. So let that sink in. Some of the people that you're giving this power to don't even know you. 
And anger only affects us. The cortisol that you're building, the blood pressure that you're boiling, that you're boiling. Yeah. We got to work on that. And I'm not saying stuff it all away or nothing's worth being angry about. All I'm saying is, is if we are getting angry to what are we trying to achieve? And if it's, I'm Gumby, damn it, need to listen to me. Well, that might not be enough or it might not be in context enough. You know, I'm using SNL. You know, you remember the SNL skit, yeah. Gumby? Yeah. All right. I'm Gumby, damn it. Um, well, sometimes that doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. Or it ruins your legitimacy in the first place. Like, so what if you're Gumby, bro? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and don't expose yourself to that if you, if you don't have to. So, but I, w- I wanted to get back to the, to the thing that you originally asked me, if you don't mind, I, I, no, I, no. you know, the reaching out thing, like with the Cohen clinics and, and with endeavors, we take ser- seriously, very seriously veteran suicide, which you kind of alluded to. All right. I don't know the data, right? I, I know that everybody likes to say 22 a day. I know everybody likes to say about every 64 seconds. I know I think they just like for every 64 to, minutes or something like yeah. that. It's, it's stats. I don't want to downplay it, but it's like, it's like Anchorman. 60% of the time, it works all the time. I, I don't know what the data is anymore. What I do know, it's like we were talking earlier. Most of the time, a vet's going to reach out to another vet. They're not going to reach out to somebody like me because I am the stigma. And that's okay. But I want vets together to gather up the courage, right? Form a little group of paratroopers, an LGOP, right? Form up a fire team, move towards the sound of the guns. Show courage again. You've already shown courage once in your life. This matters. Show it again and do it as a buddy team. Do it as a fire team. Do it as an infantry squad. Don't care. Call somebody. If you can't call somebody, listen to somebody. All right? And I don't necessarily care who you listen to, but, you know, listen to the Jocko Willinks of the world. Listen to the Zacks of the world. Listen to the Rogans of the world. Listen to the the guys out there that are asking the questions and getting the answers and moving the needle towards where we all know it needs to be, all right? And, and with vets getting past the stigma, they're going to have to n- execute it themselves, but hopefully with a buddy and through other influencers, right? The Goggins is telling them to get up and do it. The Rogans telling them, hey, ask the hard questions. The Willinks telling them to slow down. Think it through, focus. All those things, although they're media and not necessarily physical like you and I hear, they can be very instrumental, mm-hmm. very instrumental and start a line of thought and, and, and inevitably start the reach out, the first flare, right? Like I'm popping a flare on this. Yeah. And then if you're the guy out there that sees the flare, answer it. Doesn't, I know it's scary. I know it's, I know it's scary. It's scary for a clinician. But just answer it and then take it from there. Follow your gut. Follow your gut on that. All right. And then if you need to, make sure that we know what we need to know as far as the veterans hotline, local clinics, a buddy that knows a buddy, somebody that's been treated before, have them give us a call. And then we'll take it from there. But that first touch is likely going to be peer to peer. And don't let them kid you. There's a myth out there that says suicide can't be stopped. That's a myth. You can stop suicide. You can, but it's hard, and it takes attention to detail, and then it takes commitment 
And I know there's people out there that say, hey, if I wanted to do it, I'd just do it. Sure. I don't doubt that. But if we're trying to do this as a unit together, we are better together, right? Another thing, NATO, we are better together. Reach out to your teammates, former teammates, former teammates, answer the call, even you know, even though you know it might be a bad call to take initially. It's likely that you're performing mental health CPR and saving a life. Think of it as that serious, like you're administering mental health chest compressions because that's enough. Most of what my job is, Zach, and I'll be so serious with you, it's, I'm as serious as a heart attack. The skill set that I think helps most people out is listening, straight up listening. If you can be there to listen, you're winning. You're winning. Do you feel like some of it is just having the opportunity to, to voice their, their complaint, their, their battle, whatever it is that they're struggling with, not feeling like no one will listen, no one. And so they pick up that phone. Cause that's the fear for me. I, I, a few times in my life, I've got that call and I'm immediately terrified that I don't know what to say. And so you try to listen. And then when it goes quiet, it's like, I feel like I, I need to give him some kind of advice right now. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to find out that, you know, this was the last conversation and I failed and he's now not with us anymore. Do you have any, any advice on what to say to that? Is it, is it direct them toward professional? It can be over time. Again, I don't want you to turn that person off by saying, we need to call 911 right now. Right. You might need to. Yeah. You might need to. But you also could execute the power of listening. All right? That, that silence, being there with them, whether it be on the phone or in the same room, I think has a lot of value. Think of it from your own perspective. Like if you were going to really start uncorking what's going on, and you finally started uncorking it, would you want to be interrupted? Mm -mm. So then don't worry about what to say. Just be there for them. Be there for them and say, whatever you need, I can help. Whatever you need. Okay. You want me to come to you? Do you want to meet up somewhere? What do you need? All right. Certainly, you know, from a counseling perspective, we want to get somebody of authority or responsibility to them. Yeah. Whether that's their spouse, whether that's their emergency contact order person, whether that's their buddy, whether it's another unit member, whoever it is, get somebody in their physical presence with them as soon as you can. And then have them continue that conversation. And again, you're not necessarily going to solve any problems. You can certainly solve a problem that may be a life-taking type of a problem. The, the reason why people worry so much about vets is, is that they've lived kinetic lives. Right. There's a, a thousands of I don't know what the statistic is, but there's a bunch of people out there that's never touched a gun. And wouldn't touch a gun. Vets, unfortunately, that's part of their stock and trade. So we have to kind of be worried about, well, where's one of those bad boys at this point in time? Yeah. Right. Because like anything else, and this is what I tell everybody. There's one thing that always reduces the level of threat. Whatever it is, distance, whatever the threat is, 
distance will likely lessen it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it becomes simple, right? It's, it's more fire and maneuver. Like if they can shoot me where I'm at, I need to move and increase my distance. Okay. So that's the other thing. If they have a means with them, increase their distance from the means. Okay. Okay. And then the other thing is, is, you know, what I use now is courage. You've served, you've served and you've executed courage before. Use courage now and continue to reach out to me, somebody else, somebody else, or let's get you to a professional because you're worth it. This whole, whatever you're thinking right now that's bringing you down isn't what should take you. All right. What do you, what do you, have you noticed that, that they're usually thinking? Is it just that the that my family, yeah, that my family or the people around me would be better off without me? Really? And uh, you know, speaking of other podcasts, you know, I don't know John Bernthal at all, but I know of him, right? Because he's the Punisher and real ones, right? Real ones, yeah. right? Oh yeah, yeah. So he interviewed a Marine Rain uh, Raider on suicide, an absolute killer podcast. And the bottom line is, is you're not getting rid of a problem. You're passing that problem on to the ones you love the most. Yeah. That's from that Marine Raider. Mind blown. You think $400,000 or whatever SGLI, VGLI is, is going to pay for that problem? No. No, sir, it is not. So we don't even want to entertain the idea that everybody's going to be better off without us when we're gone. No, you're giving what you have in pain to them. That's the only course of action that will happen. Right. And I'll, I'll quote Keanu Reeves, right. When he gets asked, you know, on, on the television show, uh, the night show, right. What, what do you think happens to us when we die? Those that love us miss us. That's the only thing that we really know while we're here. Right. You're not supposed to use shame or guilt, but if it's going to keep somebody alive in the case of suicidal ideations, then by any means necessary. Well, Let's it's keep true. Each other alive. Right. And maybe a part of that, perspective they hadn't considered yet was it'll only end for you i mean the pain just spreads to everybody else i'm sure that you've had you know friends or colleagues people that you know that that killed themselves i have and it's a very confusing feeling when you get that call particularly if it's somebody close and i i remember feeling almost offended that like why the fuck didn't he call me like, how did he not pick up the phone? Like, we've been all this together. Mm -hmm. Well, here's the thing that struck me, and this is why, and you know this as well, you know, if you lose people, the first thing you need to do or learn to do is double down on the living. Mm. Okay. Now, I heard one of the stories from from one of these podcaster guys, right? He talked about the one Navy SEAL that, that ended up, he got like t shot 27 times or something like that. He ended up killing himself. Hmm. There's a guy that lived through combat and, and, and evidently, I, I don't know the source or the validity of the source, but that's, I remember on a, what, a, what I would consider a pretty legitimate podcast, they were talking about it. You know, the guy ended up getting 27, shot 27 times, some f famous Navy SEAL guru dude. And evidently I heard later on that he, that he ended up taking his own life. I don't know if that's true or not, but just the thought of that, that's the level of gravity that you need to put into somebody taking their own life. Like here's a guy that lived through countless missions, 
got wounded, I think, in one engagement that many times, yeah. right? And then still chose to take his own life. So that's where they're at. They're at a point past 27 bullet wounds. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So understand that that may be where they're at and to take it that seriously. Right. When I heard that story, I was like, how the hell am I going to do my job? This is crazy. Yeah. These guys are superhuman beings in the first place. Right. How do I, how do you help a superhuman being? Literally a member of the super friends, right? I don't know. Well, it's like anything else. You, you, you put a hand in, you stack hands, you don't leave anybody behind and you, you dig. And it might not be a victory. It might be a survival. It might be a pivot. It might be the next day. But that's all we can do. So again, don't be afraid picking up the phone, move towards them, increase distance from means, whatever that means is, knife, gun, bridge, car, all right? And, and, and take it from there, minute by minute, day by day, and then if they need to, get them to higher levels of, of assistance, right? It's like anything else. Nobody likes getting the keys taken away from them, right? We've, we've gotten beyond that now, right? Like we have Uber now, we have all these other much more convivial ways than, than getting into a fist fight over taking somebody's keys when you know that they're not ready. But those keys are the means for them to either kill themselves or somebody else, right? Yeah. And when it comes to drinking, we've been taught, trained to intervene. Like, don't let that happen. I would argue, take the same level of courage and action when it comes to suicide. Yeah, we're not going to let this happen. You're now on my watch and it's not going to happen whether that be for the next five minutes or for the rest of their life. It's a scary thing. But if not us, who? Yeah. What are some of the other issues that, that you, a lot of family stuff, I mean, the divorce rates are through the roof, right? What's going on with, with so, marriages and, and veterans struggling with that? So we're... I hate to show my bias on this, but our civilian counterparts don't necessarily really know what it means to be a military family and to have the moves happen, the deployments happen, the children shifts happen, the schools change, the, the countries change, the, the whole thing. Yeah. All right. Maybe some do, but I would argue most are not exposed to that level of op tempo when it comes to family change, physical change, like. 29 palms. Well, now we're going to Japan or now we're going to... Oh, Lily. Yeah, Lily. <laughs> Lil. Uh, Lil. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> and some of those things are absolutely wonderful, but some of those things, well, all of those things come at a cost. Okay. Everything costs. Everything. Even the best assignment in the world costs, a new rank costs, a raise costs, a new skill set costs, all of it. And, and military families usually do pretty good, but sometimes it can get too much. And then sometimes when it's all over, they don't even know who each other is anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and that can be problematic because they've all been on survival mode, like, you know, we're going to live through this next deployment and then we're going to go to Disneyland or we're going to, you know, whatever they're doing to, to, to keep themselves together. They, they, they finally 
maybe get to a point now where they're either out or or freshly repositioned in society. And by that, I mean, I, I think we're all in transition. <clears throat> I think we're all in transition, whether you served uh, from boot camp or 20 plus years. I think the level of involvement for the individual can be lifetime as far as transitioning goes. Yeah. And the family bears part of that, right? It's like when they, they, they teach you at ranger school that nobody earns the tab by themselves. So you, you better understand that coming in and we're going to, we're going to watch for that. Right. Um, but it's the kind of the same way with serving. You're not an individual person, whoever you are serving, your whole family in some way is serving. Even though, you know, our civilian counterparts think, you know, that we're well-protected guard dogs and have all kinds of safety nets and things like that. Yeah, we do, certainly. But there's so much strain on a lot of other things that, that they do end up in my office on occasion. And we're talking about, for the most part, mismanaged expectations, mm. which lends to a communication kind of a breakdown. Like what are we not meeting for each other anymore? I heard a quote one time that was an uncommunicated expectation is a premeditated resentment or oh, something like good. that. I mean, it can be. Yeah. But it, it, it's like, it, if you don't tell me that you need this thing, then you might as well be planning to resent me if I don't, if I don't do it. Well, you know, part of that it goes against societal perception that we grow people up sometimes thinking that there is going to be that soulmate or that person that's going to finish their sentences or that person that's going to, I don't know, as a therapist, I want to throw up in my mouth when I hear people say that, right? <laughs> like soulmate, we're still going for that? Mm. You know, yeah. the best relationship people in the world, the ones like John Gottman, the ones like Brene Brown, the ones that Esther Perel, the ones that have 50 years in the business. Relationships are work. Mm. Adulting is hard. Adulting with another adult is harder. Adulting with another adult and creating human makes it even harder. Yeah. And it takes communication. And sometimes what you feel like you're doing is you're, you almost feel like you're, 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 I mean, you ask the client to, to, to say, Hey, we got to slow this down because in no way is, is mind reading working. Well, we've been together. We should be able to, no, you shouldn't. You're two independent people. You probably vote differently, but you might not even discuss that with each other. You see what I'm saying? So, I mean, give yourselves a break. Yeah. You know, you've had human together. You can get through this. Let and, me and, oh, I'm go, sorry. Go ahead. No, uh, I was going to ask to run me through some of the Gottman stuff. I know they've got the, the Gottman stuff Four horsemen. They do. And, they have the four horsemen. Let me break it down even more simpler than that. Okay. I think, I think Gottman would, John would be okay with me saying, if I'm going to barrel down the whole Gottman therapy approach to one word, it would be friendship. And I'm stealing from him at this point. Right. The next secret sauce is repairs. Gottman wouldn't say, don't argue. He'd say, argue. Adults argue. You would want adults to have varying viewpoints, right? And then as we say, we have a conversation, discussion, argument, fight, blowout. It's like levels of warfare, right? We want argument to happen. We want two adults to be able to go into a conversation 
and have a viewpoint that may differ from their partner or anybody else for that matter on planet Earth, but not necessarily lose their minds, get over angry, and, and, and allow it to, to, to process itself, to allow the conversation to happen. But if you're in a spousal or a significant other relationship and you, you take it from argument into fight and blowout, well, the Gottmans would say, well, then what's your repair process? How do you rebid back to each other? Right? And sometimes in couples therapy, we work on couples that have that fight and they don't talk to each other for a week. And we try to narrow that down to about 20 minutes because why waste a week? Yeah. We got to get back together. It's, it's hard to adult. It's hard to adult with another adult. And it's hard to adult when you make human. You know, none of this is easy. So Sometimes it's hard to calm down in 20 minutes. I mean. <laughs> it is. It is. But again, here's the thing. Another joke, right? Like, would you argue that bad over the same issue with a coworker at work? It's, fu it's funny a lot of times like our, our coworkers or strangers on the street will get mm -hmm. so much more grace from us. Dude, there's the point. Than our spouse. You got it. You just nailed it. Why do we give other people so much more grace than the people that are our fellow parent or our buddy or our life mate or whatever word we want to put there? We give each other so less of a grace than we do everybody else. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing that I try to remind couples, whatever couple relationship that they're in, give the couple person the best of grace. Yeah. You know, but they should, we should, this should, no, no, that's a shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? And that goes back up to Albert Ellis and the Institute in New York and all that other kind of stuff. Everybody gets busted when you start shoulda, coulda, woulda. -ing. How do you help couples get through the habits that they've built. Cause just like, how do you repair? Like, how do you argue? How do you work through? I think couples can create a habit of, of this is how we've argued in the past. So this is where the blow up gets sent. Right. And so now we're not going to speak for, we're going to stonewall, right? right? Which is part of the four horsemen. We're going to get there. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and, and so how do you help them reset to break that habit and build a new one. Well, I first talk about things like the book Atomic Habits or a podcast from NPR on Atomic Habits. Habit? Atomic Habits. Okay. The, the quick story is, is that habits take a lot of work to become a habit. Right. Okay. I, I think one of the things that I remember from listening to an NPR gig one time was, is it takes about 60 days for a habit to form of you just drinking one glass of water in the morning and it being a habit and not being a checklist item mm. or something that you tell yourself, right? Yeah. We know from other types of habits, some of them addicting and not so much, right? That we fall into those things, mm -hmm. right? Communication, I believe, is the same way. We fall into communicative patterns, not unlike how we communicate online with each other. We want to, the sin, I'll use the word sin, right? Is we listen to other people for the sheer purpose of inserting our bumper sticker, our hashtag, our talking point. Our gotcha. Yeah. When we should be listening to the other person, I'm using should. When I asked people, maybe we should listen to try and learn from that person. I know it sounds ridiculous in today's day and age, right? 
but even a spouse that you've been with for X amount of years or even decades, why would you think that you've lost the ability to learn from that person after so many years? They're living and growing and changing just like you are. And of course, you can learn from them. But we've gotten ourselves in this era of communication above the strategic level down to individuals and couples where we don't listen like that anymore, right? I've had a person tell me in session, hey, I, I'm nervous about having I'm having conversations with other people now because I don't know where it's going. Well, that's where conversations are supposed to be. We're not supposed to know where they're going. Yeah, We're supposed to have dialogue with each other and potentially learn and grow and earn respect and, and exchange ideas and maybe not necessarily agree on any of them, maybe agree on one or two. But for Christ's sakes, let's not be too scared of it. You know, so you're asking, how do we break those patterns? Well, from the Gottmans and then, you know, I, I, I use the power of two from a woman named Heitler where we, where we break it down and we get back to basic communication, avoiding hopes and hints. That's the first thing that I work with couples about avoiding hopes and hints. Okay. Which is, Hey, say it out loud. Yeah. It's not that you've fallen from grace. It's just that you've fallen out of habit and, and. This is what we need to get back to. You know, and the Gottmans would say, work your way towards a date night, right? Like go into a date night with no expectations at all. Like how do you talk to a person when you're on a date with a person? It's a hell of a lot different than you're like, we're out to dinner. Yeah. You know, and I know the young people still go out on dates and both have their phones out and stuff like that. But I I'm thinking they're still a little bit more present than sometimes the lack of grace that we give our that we give our partners. And again, the listening, number one thing, being present, focused, undistracted. Yeah. Man, now we're getting into the hard territory. Yeah, how do you balance okay. that with all the, the distractions now? Simon Sinek would say put the phone down. Yeah. Leave it away and don't put the phone down upside down and think I'm I'm giving you a respectful gesture by facing my phone upside down so I can't see it. No, that's not respectful at all. Put the phone away. Don't have the phone at all. Be there. And I know it's hard. It's hard to ask these young people to do that. It's hard to ask Generation X. It's hard to ask some boomers. But that's, I think, at least the start. You know, I tell jokes in my office to people. I think, who? Do, I, I ask them, I said, what do you think brings people into my office more than anything else if I had trophies? Like if there were trophies in here in my office, which one would be the biggest one? Would it be infidelity? Would it be hands-on violence? Or would it be social media and mm. phone? Well, I guarantee you, from my experience, the thing that brings most people into my office is social media and the phone. Sometimes it's in the mere perception of what goes on within that Pandora's box that brings people to a level to where they lose trust or lose faith in each other, all of it. <laughs> It's a very, it's a wild new development having social media become chosen over relationships. Mm -hmm. Like I see it all the time in, in other podcasts, uh, mm -hmm. particularly uh, some like hip, not really hip hop, but like pop culture or dating podcasts where women are asked, would you rather have a long-term relationship or 
would you rather have your Instagram or a long-term relationship? And mm. most all of them chose Instagram. Yeah. Well, I would ask them politely. There's a recent TED Talk out there on the longevity study that started, I believe, in the 1920s and 30s with one group of males from Harvard and another group of males from the south of Boston, two completely different economic ladders, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, they're in their fifth generation of sons and spouses now with this longevity study. And uh, the one word to take away from what gets people from 50 to 85 while they're living isn't cholesterol count. It's positive relationships. Mm. The, the one being, of course, the coupling relationship, most likely. Yeah. But also, you know, the, the brosters and the sisters of the world. Those types of things. Who are you talking to? Who are you having good conversations with? Who are you relating your fears, your concerns, your whatever's with? The study, who I'm going to believe because it was on TED, pretty reasonable source, uh, says that it's, it's the relationships and how you communicate with people. And who you have to, who you have to be able to talk with and share with, right? The Gottmans would say, as as would Esther Perel and certainly Brene Brown, it's a sharing, all right. There's a joke, and I don't want to sound too sacrilegious, but let me tell you the joke, right? So I don't know who believes what, don't really care, right? But there's a story out there that said there was this one dude that had everything that he wanted, in charge of the earth and animals and everything. And could know, do what he wanted to with naming them, hanging out, do whatever. A couple of days after that, he said, hey, uh, kind of bored. And they took a rib and got him a partner. So we went from having everything, being able to do anything we wanted, to within a couple of days, asking the all-knowing, hey, it's uh, kind of bored down here. Not really. I mean, what's up? So to share the first of human conditions. Yeah. Okay. To share. Now, is that job security for couples therapists? Certainly. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's kind of it's kind of funny how that story's told. Well, I mean, it rings true in so many like you say that and I think back to would you rather take a trip a, a road trip around the world or around the country by yourself? or with your best friend, or the naked and afraid thing. My partner left on day four. I did 17 days alone, and I remember distinctly feeling how bad this sucks to not have anyone to share it with. I got out and had no one to pick up the phone and call mm -hmm. to share that, that, I, that, that understood that experience with me. It was all mine, mm -hmm. and it had almost a, a sadness to it that there you go. I didn't expect. Well, the way that I tell that story, and I hope I'm not, you know, too anti-religion or anything like that, but there is a sadness to it, isn't mm -hmm. there? Everything in the world? Yeah, not enough. I got to share this with somebody. Yeah. And then I follow that joy. I follow that story. And then she ruins it all. Well, no, no. <laughs> I, I don't say it like that. The way that I tell the story is, is, hey, you mean this apple? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. who's going to think that that wasn't in the, in the forecast anyway? Right. We're supposed to be in strife. 
our first conscious decision was to go against everything we were told. Yeah. We are human. It happens that way. And they were shield to shield against the world after that, right? Yeah. I mean, if we bite off on that story, right? who would want it any different, right? I mean, anybody listen to Bon Jovi? I don't know. Sounds pretty cool now, right? I mean, every, everybody kind of wants that kind of experience. At least we used to. I, I agree with you on this relationship thing. I've, I've had a young person tell me that they've been in three relationships. Really? And then when I dig a little deeper, none of which have been in the same physical space. All through the phone. Wow. They consider those relationships. Some of the young ones do. To a Generation Xer, that's sad. Yeah. It breaks my heart. Like, no, wait, man, you need to, you need to go do some real stuff with a human being. Right. Make mistakes. Get your parents angry at you. Live through some problems. I feel like the social intelligence level of our society is diminishing. I don't know if I can speak to that. I mean, every, I mean, I, I think there's a joke out there and I think I read it somewhere and I, I couldn't pull the source, so I, I can't, but you know, you're never going to make it, said Aristotle to Plato, you know, or vice versa, whichever, whoever was born before. I don't, I don't even remember now, but you understand what I'm saying? Every generation looks at the other generation and goes, dude, you're never going to make it. But they always do. Yeah. Right. They always do. They somehow figure it out. Okay. But again, going back to the sadness and that's really what I felt. I mean, I was like, man, dude, you got to, I don't know what to tell you on that. I don't know what to tell you on that. There's so much more life out there that you need or you ought, or maybe you can muster to get exposed to, you know? And I think all that stuff's going to work out. I really do. I think simply because we're in the era that we are right now, it's just a bad time for relationships, right? I mean, I, I would assume warfare was a bad time during the invention of gunpowder, right? Like, whoa, that changes the whole goddamn scene, <laughs> right? Like, this isn't fun anymore. Jesus. You know, well, we're at that point with relationships. Well, this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. Well, warfare found a way. Yeah. Well, guaranteed relationships are going to find a way. It's just right now we're all skewed. Because, you know, we think we're all part of the 4% or we're nines and tens when we're fours and fives or all these other kind of things that are jacking up our expectations, which is what I missed. Well, there's a lot of really interesting things interfering with relationships. The access to talk to people, these mm -hmm. apps, dating apps, were, mm. I didn't have that shit as a kid. Here's the thing that I asked people. I had to write an awkward note and like find her in the hall or slip it in her locker. Kick and it with the football, didn't... right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like... <laughs> you know, I ask people to reflect on that. I'm like, so you're, you're, you're talking to somebody on one of these sites that we know that's out there, right? I mean, they're, they're all out there. And then they're talking about them all on social media, all over it, you know? I'm like, do you really think that that's real, the term that you guys use, game, when you're, when you're talking to, to somebody on that screen and saying all the stuff that you're saying? Would you be saying that if you were at the bar? Mm. Where I come from, when I come from, we call that a poser. <laughs> right? Yeah. So if you think you're the Mac Daddy on OnlyFans, you're out of your mind, dude. 
Say that to a real human being. Yeah, the anonymity of the internet has has been... Well, I chew my own self out on occasion, right? Because every now and then I'll say something. I'm off on I'm off social media every now all of it, right? But every now and then on LinkedIn, I'll find something to where I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to respond to that. Like I think people value my opinion. No. But I feel like I just need to say something, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's the argument that I have with with my spouse. I'm like, she's like, you're, you're there you go again. You're going down, you're going down that path. And I'm like, <laughs> The only thing evil needs is for good men to do nothing, yeah. <laughs> you know, or some crap like that, you know, yeah, but I'm like, yeah. you know, got to say something like that. Cause these, these folks are out there, they're spinning in their own Venturi effects of cylinders, right? It's not only a cylinder, but it's a Venturi cylinder. You're just in there in your own world, spinning out of your mind and you're virtually signaling over every site that you can possibly get to. And that's all virtual. There's nobody there. Yeah. There's nobody there. And and to who are you being virtuous to? You know, and I get that clicks and likes and things like that make people money. I get that. The monetization's been a huge influence for right. sure. And where has it gotten us? Hmm. See what I mean about that monetization again? We're in a place right now where if it makes money, it's virtuous. Right. Mm. Or nobody cares if it isn't. Nobody's ever said that in the past, though. Yeah. Right. And what I try to talk to people about, and I don't try to shame them or anything like that. I'm like, is this your station? Is this truly your station? And I'm not saying live virtuous to do anything crazy, man. If you want to watch porn, watch porn. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell somebody to be holier than thou. I'm just saying if that's above or below your station, what are you doing? You know, and I think social media has given everybody this venue to where they can speak. But I don't know in that full transparency type of a situation, and it's not transparent anymore now, we know, because they they monitor social media and, and they change things around and they titrate things and open other things up and all these other kind of things. So it's not free speech. Yeah. It's different. And again, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, I said, you know, if it's not in your three-foot circle, what are you doing? And I fall victim to it myself. I do. Sure. But if it's all it's doing is building cortisol for me, right? It's not doing me any good. When I first went through the counselor program and we started, you know, this was back in the 04 to 08 kind of a situation, you know, we used to ask people, you know, because we were living in New York at the time, right? It was at the beginning of social media. 20, 2004 to 2008 was the early, early versions of social media, right? Yeah. And people were like, oh, I got so many likes or whatever. It did, they didn't even have likes then. You know, we just had- It was you. MySpace. I think Jared yeah. had all the likes or uh, right? whatever that guy's name was. I was like, okay, so you got all this, but if your car broke down on the Veranzano Bridge, who would come get you? Yeah. Not a one. Not a one. Yeah. So we need, we knew even then- this stuff is fake. It does give us the dopamine, right? Simon Sinek will beat us to death, and he's right. This will give us dopamine equal to that of alcohol and drugs. So that's why we do it. Yeah. The mind doesn't interpret differently, I don't think. I mean, I, I've listened to Huberman. I've listened to Simon Sinek. I've listened to those that I think are pretty smart on the issue. And the addiction level to the dopamine or award center rewards of the brain, the brain doesn't necessarily decipher. 
Ergo, we're all addicted to the dopamine that our phone gives us. So we do stupid things on the phone to get that dopamine, right? We send that text at 2 a.m. We answer that text at 2 a.m. We reach out on OnlyFans or one of these stupid sites as far as dating, whatever. I don't know. Do you feel like social media has become the fifth horseman? I don't know. I, I think I think I'll have to wait till the experts come out and see what they have to say about that. I know from from there's a one of the guys from New York University. I can't remember his name right now, but he he wrote the the article after Babel. All right, and after Babel is is a very deep study on social media and social media's impact, specifically on youth, but on all of us really. And and it and it was published in the Atlantic in like May of. 2021 or something like that. It was in the Atlantic. Titles after Babel. And it really points out how social media has made us hate each other more, how it's distanced us from each other more. It's allowed true colors to disassociate us more. Specifically on the children on the children realm. They know children at a certain age when exposed to phones and social media will hockey stick after a year in depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation hmm. from things like fear of missing out or comparing themselves to real things that they can't compare themselves to because they're not real. Right. That's only one level. Social media only exposes one level of one person, one level, one color, one, one space in time. And everybody's like, well, they're all doing this in Dubai and I'm still stuck here in Abilene. Well- no, not necessarily. And you shouldn't necessarily compare yourself to that. Yeah. But people do when they get themselves down a hole. And that's not a good thing. And that's why social media is a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Like I want people to listen to the Bernthals of the world, to the Zacks of the world, to the Willinks of the world. But I also don't want them spiraling out comparing themselves to people they don't even know or hating people in countries they've never seen <laughs> or yeah. in other states that they've never met. Yeah. To a therapist, that's like, man, we're driving ourselves down the hate alley and that's not what we want. What are the other four horsemen? Let's discuss those directly about what they are and, and how that's affecting veterans' families. Well, part of, let's, let's go backwards. Okay. We've got, Stonewalling and defensiveness, right? Let's just talk there for a minute. Um, when I work with couples specifically on the Gottman method and we talk about those two particular horsemen, okay? Sometimes we have to at least entertain the idea that they might have learned stonewalling through the way that they've lived their life. Right. And that is, okay, they're military. They can't talk about everything that they do at their job. Uh, if they're deployed, they're not going to vomit up all bad things on both ends, right? Like the forward person isn't going to talk about all the bad things that are going on. And the, and the person still at home isn't going to necessarily talk about all the bad things that's going on either. Sure. So they're not necessarily talking about maybe some of the things they feel like they ought to talk about, but they don't. They keep it convivial. So that kind of builds up a communication pattern of keeping things convivial. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, but that's also OPSEC and that's also 
family readiness group enforced and all kinds of stuff, right? right? So we learn that through behavior. So we have to kind of break through what stonewalling might mean to a couple because shutting down is an option that we teach ourselves, right? Like I can't go there because of OPSEC. I can't go there because it's going to distract you. It's, I, I can't go there because I'm taking care of it anyway and I don't want to hear your opinion, right? <laughs> There's the big one. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have to kind of at least open the aperture a little bit. Sometimes when I talk to people, I talk to them about it like rifle shooting sometimes, right? Like in the early days when you learn to shoot and you're a sniper, so you're great at it, you know, it's sight alignment, sight picture, right? But you're only looking at this thing. Mm -hmm. But then we learn later on, hey, maybe you assault shoot and you keep your eyes wide open and you see a greater part of the battlefield and you can still be just as accurate with your eyes open if you train, okay? And you can see greater amount of threat. So that's what I kind of say, hey, we, we got to get away from just looking at one thing and losing our mind over it. We have to open our eyes and get away from that and then start the process of uncoiling stonewalling, okay? Now, with defensiveness, right, everybody gets a little defensive, okay? That can be built into the military family construct as well, too, because as we said before, you're not here. I'm making the calls. I don't need to hear your opinion, <laughs> Okay? Because this is what's up. I ain't telling you how to do your job, and I'm doing mine. Sometimes that grates people's gears. And sometimes they find themselves having to defend themselves in that way. So we have to kind of uncoil, you know, defensiveness a little bit when it relates to that too. Criticism being another one. I think criticism is everybody's go-to, right? We start to criticize. We talked about this earlier. Why do we give everybody else more grace than we give our spouse? Well, because our spouse should know that. Well, maybe they should not know better. Maybe it's something that we haven't talked about. Well, we've been together for 10 years. How the hell does she not know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we got to remind ourselves, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you've been in great units, right? Units that, that do great things. What do we always do? Rehearse. Mm. We train at the basic, basic, basic level and then bring ourselves all the way up. If you're going to go through a training evolution, you start at the very basics and work your way up. It's not like there's an assumption on anything, right? Right. So I try to remind people that way. I'm like, hey, look, man, everybody trains. And, and it, just because, I mean, you made it through that evolution once, that was six months ago. You're not certified right now to do that mission at all anymore. You got to recertify. You got to re-go back and do it. You know, and, and I would argue when you talk to the, the fellas and the ladies that do the super rehearsals, the super missions, it's all about the rehearsal and the, and, the, and the communication during the operation that keeps things going. So how do, we, you, how do you train for a fight? How do you train for whatever well, shit comes up between on the day-to-day Mm -hmm. You forgot to pick up her medication at CVS. You, mm -hmm. you know, made a quip about her mother. You know, <laughs> how do you train well, for those battles? Here's the thing. I, you know, my spouse's favorite word is pick your battles, mm. right? Which is always at the above strategic and strategic level. You want to come down this alley with me? Really? <laughs> okay. And I'm not saying acquiesce either. Just saying, pick your battles. Yeah. 
The other thing is, is sometimes you got to let pride step aside and be authentic. Like you're right. I did say I was going to pick that shit up and I didn't. I'm going to go get it now. All right. John Gottman would say, hey, you know, sometimes we have everything going on, right? Like John Gottman has a little video out there that, that he has of himself where he authentically tells of a time when he had a day kind of set aside for him and he was going to read one of the books that he wanted to, to read, right? Well, his spouse, while he was prepping to do all this, started to discuss something, right? Here's a guy with 50 years in the business of couples therapy, an international and nationally recognized relationship expert with over 50 years worth of data on behavior as it relates to couples. And what did John say in this small video that even he had to do? He had to go something to the effect of, oh, God, I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. I'm going to make a choice to move towards her. Now, I don't know if he has pressure because he has 50 years in the business mm -hmm. or it's what he knows that he knows he has to do. All right. And again, that's not to bend. You're asking, well, how do you stay out of fights? Well, you choose them because a fight is something that both people want. Otherwise, it's just a beat down. Okay. And some people come into the situation itching for a fight. Like, I got something to say about some shit. Okay. Again, the Gottmans would say, no problem. Esther Perel, I don't think, would say, no problem. I mean, she would say, make sure you discuss it because you're two humans with some issues. What I think they would say is, is don't let it build up to fight level before you start to engage. Mm. Go back to that zero and one level of warfare, right? Like what are we doing set in conditions so that we avoid consistent kinetic engagement? Yeah. Right? The nuclear bomb. Exactly. Yeah. So what are we doing? If we forgot, if we got overwhelmed, if we got selfishly engaged with something else, which sometimes can happen. Go authentically back into that space and go, hey, I know I've been spinning some plates on a number of the shit that I got going on, but I'm back now and I'm here. And that's what I mean about listening and presence. I mean, I think even in today's day and age, even with the young ones, there's a point in time where each of us want everybody to set everything else down and just be with us for that minute or that moment. And that can speak volumes. It can certainly gain you space and time to stay away from that fight. Or if you did have the fight to start the, what I said before with, you know, the secret sauce of the Gottmans, which is repair. Hmm. You know? The thing that couples come into a lot of times with Zach is, is, you know, the division of labor. Hmm. Okay? Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily believe in Marxism at all as far as a governance, but I do believe Marx had something right when he said labor has value. Because as I joke with some people, you know, even though you go to the soccer game with young kids and they say, hey, we're not keeping score. We're just out here so the kids can have a good time. If you go down to the bench, the five-year-old, if you ask him, will tell you who's winning and by what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can go ask anybody else down there at the same age, who's the prettiest, who's the tallest, who can run the fastest. And that's not because they're sexist or crazy. It's because they're human and we're trained to work on two feet upright with our eyes close together in the front of our head with depth perception and be a predator. 
everything we judge sort of in that manner. When we look at each other, yeah, we're judging. Carl Jung would say, yeah, we're judging. Yeah. We certainly are. Even though we'll say, I'm not judging. Bullshit. We're doing something. All right. And when couples couple up, regardless of what the couple looks like, and you know this because you were Joe, if somebody has the impression that their rucksack is heavier than their buddies, they got issue with that. And it can be, oh, he's the machine gunner, right? Or he, you know, he's earned his rank. He's earned his rate to carry the gun. Yeah. So he carries a, a heavier rucksack, but he's the gunner for Christ's sake. He gets to do gun stuff, you know? Same thing with the sniper rifle. You got to carry your primary plus the sniper rifle plus the pistol. Well, they've earned that and, and they're into that. So we'll give them that. But if it's, you know, if it's just, if I'm doing a 20 mile road march and I got a 50 pound rucksack and you got a 35 pound rucksack, what, 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 what do you not have in your ruck? Mm-hmm. Bro. <laughs> just a beach ball yeah exactly <laughs> I got my sleeping bag Hoss yeah. check it out didn't even use the stuff sack yeah you know so people get concerned about that and couples do because everybody feels like this relative strain of what they're doing or what they feel like they're doing so do you advise to not keep score I do like a bastard I do I go please try not to keep score please try not make please try to not make the relationship transactional in a sense where it's tit for tat. Yeah. Right? Now, I try to blend it into, of course, it's transactional, right? Like nobody goes into any relationship not having expectations. Right. If I go into Black Rifle Coffee or Starbucks, I have an expectation that I'm going to buy a coffee. They're going to make it and I'm going to pay for it. And Relationships the, are conditional. They are conditional. Sure. All right? Jordan Peterson would say that as well too. Yeah. All right? So we have some conditions that are better when they're met, all right? So you got to talk about that, right? Now, if that's to say, hey, you know, I got the water this time, but you got the ammo, and I know it's a little different, but we can't go without either. So you're getting off, you're getting over a little bit, but I know we're going to swap, right? Then it can be a longevity kind of a thing, Yeah. right? Like that's even kind of biblical, right? Like sometimes they carry you and sometimes you carry them. Right? It's like the footprint in the sand little thing that you can buy at Hobby Lobby or whatever. All right? So you got to kind of think of that in the long game as well, too. Most times people get caught up in the when it goes on for too long or it, it got too heavy and, and then somebody dropped something. And then they want to find accountability. And that, that becomes problematic because I'm not – a counselor isn't in the j- position to be accountable. Like we're not judge, juries, executioners, anything like that. What we try to do is provide space and time for the couple to kind of expand on that and examine it and go, okay, well, yeah, you know, sure. But you do have to kind of keep track of it. I just try and say, don't try and make it transactional. Like when I come in and I buy a a Slurpee, you know, don't, don't make that as how it is with the relationship. I did this, so now you need to do that. Yeah. Nobody's do anything. A joke that I tell about that is, is, you know, sometimes, you know, I, uh, if I was ever going to write a book, it would probably be something like dishes, dishes off the port bow, right? Because, you know, when the Titanic went down, they yelled something like iceberg, iceberg off the port bow. I don't even know what was the port or starboard. I don't know. Right. But everybody knows. I think it was right ahead. Like, well, exactly. <laughs> you know, we know that icebergs metaphorically 
are, yeah. are used as, you know, it's just the tip. The rest of it is like, oh, there's a whole continent of ice underneath what you see as the iceberg or whatever they say about icebergs, right? Well, I say that about dishes, right? Because most people, when they start talking about the division of labor, somehow dishes get brought in. H-E-B, right? Merging and dishes, all right? Seems kind of tactical, but they always get brought in. And then I always say some stuff like, okay, well, let's examine this, right? Everybody eats, right? Yeah. Everybody eats on a clean plate, right? Okay. Have you ever eaten on a dirty dish? No. The hard question is, is what makes you feel like you're owed somebody cleaning your dishes? That's the hard question. And then we we do kind of elevate it a little bit. And then we do kind of say, okay, well, I, I bring in all the money. I do this, I do that. I expect this, I do that. Really? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. What's going on on the other end? And we open that up a little bit. And most of the time, we back them away from a transactional thing. I use the, the, sh the television, the movie, The Breakup, right? With Vince Vaughn, mm. right? Jennifer Aniston goes, I want you to want to do the dishes. Vince Vaughn replies, dude, like, why would I want to do the dishes? Right? Yeah. It's not one of those things that you want to or not. It's a must. Yeah. Nobody eats on dirty dishes. Who's owed what? And are we really owed anything? So that's kind of where we kind of go with that, you know? Now, the horror story about the breakup is, is Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston did in fact end up breaking up. Yeah. Because they just couldn't get back on track. Those are choices. She wouldn't do the dishes. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe he didn't either. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. I got you, yeah. Okay. So. What else? Hit me, Chief. I got the moves. We got about five minutes. Um, I wanted to ask for some book recommendations. Okay, good question. I got two for you. What you got? Okay. Victor Frankel. Okay. Right off the bat, that's the first one. Is that the title or the author? No, that's the author. What's the, what's the book? Victor Frankel. Um, the name of the book is... Uh, uh, yeah, Man's Search for Meaning. Exactly. Man's Search for Meaning. Okay. Thank you for that help. It's Man's Search for Meaning. And the second one, um, I'm a little bit biased, right? Because I'm older now. I'm 54. But the book that I'm finding that's helping me quite a bit is, is the book called From Strength to Strength. Hmm. And that's by Brooks, uh, B-R-O-O-K-S, Brooks. And that's finding out how you kind of fit in when you're over 50. Because oh. you're not a, the way that I frame it is, is I'm not, a, I'm no longer a warrior anymore. I'm more of a village elder. <laughs> right? So how do you find value added when you're just the village elder? You sharpen the swords. There's things well, you can do. exactly. Yeah. You got to figure out, you know, how you fit in when you're not the biggest, the strongest, and the sure. fastest. Because, you know, metaphorically speaking, that's for young people. Young people are supposed to be engaging in that kind of stuff. Right. Like fluid intelligence. The, the ones that are out there making it happen on a day-to-day -day basis. 
you know, and uh, as an X, right, a generation Xer that looks down at millennials and Zs and looks up at boomers and goes, all you people just kill me. All right. Um, I try to figure out, and, and this from strength to strength is helping me, is, well, how do you, how do you find what you have and have that be value added to the people around you? Yeah. Right? Like every time I go into the, like you, you talk about becoming, uh, being a soldier and then becoming a, a clinician or a, a licensed professional counselor. There's two things I say before I go into my office every morning when I'm fussing with my keys. One of them is I say, follow your own advice, asshole. Okay. The next one, I quote Braveheart, right? When they're in there with the king. Who is this man who speaks to me as if I need his advice? Right? And he chucks the his son's boyfriend out the window. Yeah. Right? Because they're like talking about war and shit. Like oh, that, yeah. Right? So the king's like, who is this man who speaks to me as if I need his advice? And he chucks him out the window. Yeah. I expect every client to look at me and go, dude, I don't need your goddamn advice. Yeah. So you humble yourself well, before I, you come into the office. I, I say in no way can I be in any effect for this person if I don't do either of those. One, I have to do the best I can to lead by example and to be authentic. I have arguments. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's not perfect over in my household all the time. We run through it for sure. We're running and gunning all the time, but we repair and get back after it. Has anything you've done helped you with a hard time, a dark time? Are you comfortable talking about psychedelic? Uh, so I went to Heroes and Horses in Montana this summer with Micah Fink and his outfit that's out there. Mm -hmm. I was one of the vets that was selected for that for this summer. I didn't make it. All right. On about day four or five, I got tossed from my mount and I ended up getting a punctured lung and, and seven broken ribs. Holy shit. Yeah, it took me out. Um, so you never really know what your dark times are going to be. Yeah. Right? Like I, I make fun of it with vets and my buddies, right? Like don't ever tell any vet like us that we're at rock bottom because if you give me a shovel in a couple of hours, I'll have us a foxhole shoulder goddamn deep. You see what I mean? Yeah. So I went to this place. I had the privilege and the blessing to go to this place for only four days, five days-ish. But I learned so much from all those guys out there in those five days. But I did have some things go on, you know, and one of them was my minimal exposure to psychedelics. And it was for medical reason and not for therapy. But I had to get a chest tube because my lung had collapsed. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I got ketamine. Now, everybody kind of knows that there are some ketamine therapies out there, right? Yeah. Like we don't do necessarily ketamine therapy at the Cohen clinics, but we're keeping an eye on it and we're going to see what the science says and the, on the, as we move further down the road. Cause there's a lot of people, Johns Hopkins and other places that are looking at these things. And, uh, so anyway, just to, from my personal perspective, right? I can't speak to it kind of on a professional level, but on a personal perspective, I was in a pretty good place, but I was in significant pain. And 
And I got a chest tube and they used ketamine, which I'm assuming was a greater dosage than you would for therapy. <laughs> okay. So uh, we went to K-Town or Planet K or whatever, you know, whatever. K-Hole. K-Hole, right. Went down the K-Hole. Um, and honest to God, Zach, I saw the matrix. All right. And based on what I, had, you know, was learning with, with Micah Fink and the guys at Heroes and Horses, the place that I was in mentally at my injury, what I was trying to do for myself and why I went originally uh, to, to deal with myself. Um, I saw the matrix and from a personal standpoint, I'm not on the wall anymore. I like, I believe that this can help people if they're in the right place. Yeah. Because I came out of that and I guess the easiest way that I can say it was, is it wasn't necessarily super fundamental, but it was emotional. And I saw kind of like the whole of the efforts of my life and the impacts of my life kind of play out in whatever it was, the 30, 45 minutes that I was like ketamine, like hits you really hard. And then you kind of bleed off of it. And then it's like done. You're like a regular person. Mushrooms, right? same way. Man. Yeah, you know, a little slower hit, but yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I came out of it and I was like, and they were laughing because I was evidently, I was still kind of semi-conscious talking with the docs and the nurses, you know, all this stuff, kind of walking them through what, what I was walking through. Um, but I came out with the, with the concept of, Hey, you know, if the spirit or, or God or, or whatever, whatever this thing holds ends up with, you know, um, and they grade on a curve, maybe I'll make it, you know? So from that point on, I was hit with this gratitude thing. Like I'd never been hit before. Mm. And I'm glad we can kind of end at the time with together on gratitude because I left there saying no bad days, right? Yeah. Every day is day zero for me, day zero, right? Day zero of ranger school, day zero of whatever you're going through. And there are no bad days because gratitude hit me there like, like it was the blatant display of the obvious like you wouldn't believe. And I think that's where if I was going to tell any vet, work more towards gratitude than anything else. And that will help you get out of that hole because it just, it just seems to be that way. Sounds, They're not wrong. Yeah. The shamans are not wrong. Yeah. It's a beautiful experience. Um, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Thank you for coming in here and sharing you. your story. It's an honor and a privilege. Again, I'm humbled to even be asked. I know I watched some of the podcasts that you've done before. I, I am, I'm just a nobody, man. I'm just getting, I'm living Monday to Monday. We Everybody all are. Else. <laughs> exactly. Thanks, man. Thanks it's for great having to see me. You. you bet. Anytime.